Okay, everybody, let's get started this morning. Um, hoping to get to a certain place today before I take off, and you guys are going to get into some, uh, what is it? Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Hopefully, maybe finish the book out while I'm gone. Okay, if I stay gone long enough, I can probably arrange that. I can probably arrange it. Um, let's get started this morning. I was encouraged last night. I don't know if you guys uh, were privy to this, but it really encouraged me last night to see the first lady of the United States of America lead a rally in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I'm sure I'm waiting for ChristianNews.net to find something wrong that she did last night, or somebody will have something to say, but I'm going to tell you, I don't ever remember that in my lifetime. In fact, even thinking about as far back as Nancy Reagan or Barbara Bush or Hillary Clinton or um, uh, Laura Bush, uh, the one that wasn't a, you know, we're not one of those born-again Christians, you know, the one that said that, or Michelle Obama doing something like that. So I'm just encouraged by that. I mean, that is how our Lord taught us to pray. You know, people want to slough that off as being some sort of recitation, but that is how our Lord taught us to pray. And I was just encouraged to hear those words echoed and um, declared. And the great thing about it is she didn't leave out the part that the modern Bibles leave out in Matthew chapter 6. What I find here in my King James Bible, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the Jesus we preach is a king. And he's bringing a kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. We should preach it because he's coming. And he's coming soon. And he's going to fix what even our, the things our president will never be able to fix. He's going to fix it all. But praise God for someone in the White House that's not an enemy of the Christian church. Let's continue to pray for him, and let's continue to ask that God would open his eyes to the truth, not just an acknowledgement of God, but a full-on faith in the God of the Bible, like God did with Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar's eyes began to be opened in Daniel chapter 2. In chapter 3, they were further opened, and in chapter 4, they were totally opened. So let's just continue to pray for that, pray that for those in leadership in our country, and that God would silence the naysayers and those that would want to drive us further away from the God of our fathers. So we praise God for that. I do want to read another. I'm, I'm encouraged by that last night, and I am also continue to be encouraged by things I find that were once preached or written by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a, was a bold man of God, but he had many enemies and had a very discouraging time and battled depression his entire life and wondered if the things he was doing or taking the time to do were even, was even worth it. Little did he know that far beyond the grave, his words that were written in times when everybody had something wrong with him, not having enough love, being divisive, all the things that modern churchianity says today, that the words he penned would continue to speak to believers in generations to come. These are his words in a sermon, The Leafless Tree. If we read the Scriptures aright, the Jews have a great deal to do with the world's history. They shall be gathered in. Remember, this was in the late 1800s when <laughs> there was no modern state of Israel. It was the Ottoman Empire and it had been so for, for centuries. Messiah shall come 
The Messiah they are looking for, the same Messiah who came once and will come again, shall come as they expected Him to come the first time. They then thought He would come a prince to reign over them, and so He will when He comes again. He will come to be King of the Jews and to reign over His people most gloriously. For when He comes, both Jew and Gentile shall have equal privilege Though there shall yet be some distinction afforded to that royal family from whose loins Jesus came. For he shall sit upon the throne of his father David, and unto him shall be gathered all the nations. Praise God for that. I want to continue our study today in Revelation 14 of what I call these four snapshots of the end of the great war between the dragon and the woman. Four snapshots of victory. The victory campaign that involves Messiah taking back what is fully His. We've been talking about a snapshot of assembly. Much like this assembly on top Mount Suribachi in the Pacific Theater of World War II, Iwo Jima. Today I want to get into the snapshot of judgment. When we look at this picture of Normandy, we know that judgment upon the Nazis has come. The beginning of the end. Then we're going to talk about, not today, but we're, there's a snapshot of rest here when we see this famous New York Times headline. Though everything wasn't wrapped up, we know that the, the, the Allies could rest. Snapshot of rest. It's done. It's over. The rest is formality. Then, of course, we have a snapshot of... Um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Reaping. The reaping. We, we see this and we know that the sins of the Axis powers... In World War II were reaped. Just a single snapshot, worth a thousand words. These pictures here, these snapshots that John sees in chapter 14 are worth a thousand words. We've been talking about the gathering of the 144,000 on what I believe is the earthly Mount Zion amidst the rubble following the victory at Armageddon. Before things are cleaned up, there's a gathering there with the first fruits of the remnant, the ultimate manifestation of the Israel of God. And these are described in verses uh, in verse 4 is the 144,000 are they which were not defiled with women for they are virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They don't follow the rabbi. They don't follow the false Messiah. They follow the Lamb. They're redeemed from among men. They were redeemed from among Israel. A remnant. And they're the first fruits. That means they're just the first. There's others. There's others holed up in the wilderness. There's others scattered that will be preserved. When it says they were not defiled with women or and that they are virgins, I don't believe this means they are single men. I don't believe this necessarily means that they're unmarried. We have a figure of speech here in the Scriptures. And the context necessitates that. It's obviously a figure of speech referring to the, their uh, uh, spiritual virginity. They have not fallen into the spiritual fornication of the times. The Scriptures are full of figures of speech. Those of us that believe and preach the Bible literally don't ignore figures of speech. We let the context tell us there are figures of speech. When it says here that these are they which were not defiled with women, literally this means these 144,000 are men who had not had premarital or adulterous sex with women. They're men. You cannot divorce the male aspect of those words in the original language. 
But then it says, for they are virgins. The word virgin there in the original language means females. means unmarried women who've not had sex with a man. So how can a group of people both be all men and yet all women? So we know we have here a figure of speech. These are spiritual virgins in the sense of not being involved with the crowning sin of the day, fornication. We know it's spiritual fornication because later in the chapter in verse 8, when the second angel announces the fall of the world system Babylon, she is spoken of as making all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Moral depravity, spiritual fornication, that is the cry of the hour today. Are we as spiritual virgins? Are we as those who are not corrupted? We live in a day when the mantra is do as thou wilt. Did you know that the central, the greatest commandment for the Christian, Jesus said, is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the same everlasting gospel that's preached here later in the chapter. But in the Satanic Bible, the greatest commandment for the Satanist is not worship Satan. It's not bow down to the king of hell. It's not that at all. The great commandment, according to the Satanic Bible, is do as thou wilt. Do what you want to do. That's the central theme of Satanism. This world society is satanic. The kingdom of Antichrist is satanic. Do as you want. You know that comment that was, or that prayer request that was shared this morning about the young man who's now claiming to be an agnostic. I've known this for some time. It's really sad because he's a liar. He's not an agnostic. He's lying when he says that. He knows the truth. He knows the truth. When you know the truth and claim not to, you're not an agnostic. You're a deceiver. You're deceiving yourself. Those of us out here that think it's okay for all of these things and all of a sudden God's Word has changed in this day and time, we're not like these who are virgins and not defiled. We've defiled ourselves when we ignore the truth. We ought to be those that say, Thou shalt not in a day when do as thou wilt is the modus operandi. And this is what describes these witnesses. They are a future group of people and we can learn from their future example because their example is written, therefore it's as good as done. We can learn from them. Yes? Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. It's over. I can see our company is it's becoming a darker, darker atmosphere. <clears throat> People do what they want. Mm. But you know, I said, leave that track there, maybe somebody will take it. Amen. I mean, the fact is, guys, people go to hell. 
what we want to do is just try to convince ourselves that people we know were lost maybe weren't lost. People go to hell. And that's right. Ultimately, they don't go to hell because of something we've not said or something we've done. I mean, we need to do what's right and communicate the gospel. But people go because they choose to. And that's why it's so important for us to be a witness. You know, putting a tract in a bathroom, man, that's a great way to be a witness when you might not know what to say. That's a great way. That's something simple we can do. So many times I go out and I forget. I just forget. That's not good enough. So that's a great example. That's something you can do in the workplace. And if they get mad about it, so be it. God will give you the words to say in that moment. But thou shalt not in a day when society says do as thou wilt. And a great way to be that way is to put the truth out there in printed form. Thanks for that. Genesis 6 verse 9. There's another element to this when talking about the virginity of these witnesses. The undefilement of these witnesses. There's another element I believe here. And it's very similar to what made Noah perfect in his generations. Turn to Genesis 6. I'm going to look at verse 9. What we have in the first eight verses, it says that when men began to multiply on the earth, they bore daughters. This was uh, before the flood. And these daughters were beautiful, and the sons of God, which were angels, saw them and lusted after them. And they came down and cohabitated with, sons of God cohabitated with the daughters in and produced an offspring. This offspring was, were superhumans. What Greek mythology calls demigods. They were giants, men of old, men of renown. That was one of the things that happened before the flood. The human DNA was corrupted with an angelic seed. It was Satan doing what he thought he could do to overthrow the seed of the woman. It was Satan sowing the seed of the serpent that was prophesied against there in Genesis 3. And as a result, you had corrupted human DNA, corrupted with angelic cohabitation, producing a corrupt seed. A demonic seed. That's where I believe the demons came from. The demons were the spirits of the offspring of these cohabitations where the body died but the spirit lived on and had to inhabit something. I wouldn't live and die on that hill, but it seems to make sense. But it says here in verse 9, in the context of all this, that in verse 8, Noah, however, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Man's, every thought of man was wickedness. Even his DNA was corrupted and wicked. And then it says in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. That means righteous. Righteousness is defined in Abraham's life as believing God. Noah believed God. He was a just man. He believed that a seed... And he was part of raising up that godly seed. He was a heritage from Adam down to Noah, including Seth and Enos and others who were a witness of God, including... Uh, 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 Methuselah, a great witness. Lamech, who prophesied about rest coming. Methuselah's name means when he dies, it will come. Methuselah was 969 years old. The year he died was the year the flood came. Even his name was a prophecy. But Noah was a just man and he was perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. What does that mean? Does that mean Noah was perfect and without sin? No. 
That word generations there could be understood to mean genes. He was perfect in his genes. Noah's line had not been corrupted with this cohabitation of the angels with the sons of God with daughters of men. It hadn't been corrupted. It was a pure line from Adam down to Noah. And God preserved his line. Now Jesus says that in the last days, it'll be like the days of Noah. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Now never since before the flood has this type of thing happened on a worldwide scale. God's not like there's never been a flood on a worldwide scale. But what has happened since the flood? There have been local floods, right? In history, this type of thing has happened again. In remote places, in far corners, here and there. Never to the extent that it was before the flood. And there's evidence of that. There's archaeological evidence of that in South America, in some of the places we're going to be this summer. Israel, when it came into the land of promise, found that there. That's why they were so afraid. The Anakims, the giants, Goliath and the Philistines were of that seed. That's why that land was so corrupted and wicked. The land of Canaan was a picture of what the world, the whole world was before the flood, and that's why God purged it and gave it to Abraham. So it's happened before. I've even seen reports. I don't know how true this is. I've seen an interview with an American soldier that was in Iraq where a company went out to, not Iraq, Afghanistan, where a company went out to some caves because of some uh, uh, reports of, of an enemy presence out there. And supposedly there was one of these giants living in a cave out there. And they had, it took a whole battalion to finally subdue it and just kill it. And the U.S. government hauled its body off, and this guy was there when he saw him deliver it, saw what was under the cover, and then it was gone and it's never been talked. I don't know how true that stuff is. I mean, people claim to see and do all of these things, but it would make sense to me. This is what defined the world in the days of the flood. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 24? 37 and 38, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the man, Son of Man be. In the days of His coming, the world will be like it was in Noah. Wickedness. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. What marrying and giving in marriage was going on? If you understand God's definition of marriage, which is physical union, it's referring to what was taking place there in Genesis 6. Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. This type of stuff is going to be going on in the last days. Increased demonic activity. Satan raising up his Superman and trying to infiltrate not just the human race, but the Jewish race to purge it so it can't be redeemed. Satan knows that that DNA cannot be redeemed by God. And yet God promises a remnant to be redeemed out of Israel. So He's going to do everything in His power to corrupt the entire human race. So there can't be any tribulation saints. So there can't be any remnant out of Israel. In a sense, I believe the purity of these witnesses indicates that they're not corrupted in this fashion. They're not corrupted by the Nephilim that we see there in Genesis. So not defiled with women and virgins is not single people necessarily. The context tells us otherwise. We have a figure of speech. 
And, that, and the context makes it clear. It's not a figure of speech because I say it is. It's because the context makes sense there. It's a good opportunity to look at a couple of places in the Scripture where we see the same thing so you guys can know when you study the Scriptures. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a great figure of speech here that's often ignored and as a result you get into bad doctrine. You get into divisive doctrine and legalism. 1 Peter 3.3 3. Actually, let's start at verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Did you know that your ladies, that your demeanor and your attitude and the way you honor your husband is a witness to the lost world? There are people out there that are not going to listen to the word of God. They don't want to hear it. But when they see your conversation and the way you are as a wife and a mother, that really is a witness that will point people. Some people will be won by that example. You want to talk about lifestyle evangelism. If there is a lifestyle evangelism in the New Testament, it's this right here. It's a woman being faithful in what God has called her to be. So opposite of the world. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. That word conversation never only meant your words. In English, the word means more than your words. It's your actions. It's your lifestyle. Just because we don't understand it that way doesn't mean the King James is wrong. That's what the word means. Get a dictionary and look it up. Now look at verse 3. Who's adorning, that means who's clothing. What, What does it mean? Let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold. A lot of people stop there. Ladies, you shouldn't be fixing your hair. Ladies, you shouldn't have a gold ring. You shouldn't be wearing a wedding ring. There are some church groups that think teach wedding rings are a sin. You shouldn't have them. So therefore, they give each other wedding watches on their wedding days. And sometimes these watches cost around ten dollars to $12,000. Rolexes. Ladies, you shouldn't be wearing gold. If you wear gold or you play it or cut your hair, you're in sin. This is, not, this is a figure of speech. How do I know that? Continue reading the rest of the verse. Let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair and wearing of gold. Paul's not saying these things are wrong. Nor of the putting on of apparel. You want to take it literal, then ladies, you need to take your clothes off because it says don't put on apparel. If wearing gold is wrong, then it's wrong for a woman to wear clothes. And we know that's not what Peter's saying. He's not saying, Paul says elsewhere, that nothing is wrong in and of itself. What is he saying? It's a figure of speech to emphasize what? Verse 4, let it be the hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. In other words, when I, I like for my wife to wear jewelry. I like for her to fix her hair. I like for her to wear nice clothes. But that's not what makes her pretty. When I see my wife, I don't see gold and jewelry. I see a spirit that wants to do what's right. And she's a, she may have gold on, but she's adorned with a spirit that wants to be obedient to the Lord. That's what she's clothed with. And that's what I appreciate. 
That's why I love it. It's a figure of speech. Women, let that be what characterizes you. Make, make yourselves up pretty for your husbands. Do it. This is a figure of speech. It's obvious in the context. It's, a fig, it's figures of speech to highlight spiritual truth. Not because Jesse Boyd says so, but because the context necessitates it. Look at 1 Corinthians 5.8. This is another one I see where a figure of speech is ignored and it's argued by people in the Hebrew Roots movement to say that if we're not keeping the Feast of the Passover as the Gentile church, that we're in sin. 1 Corinthians 5.8 Therefore let us keep the feast. And of course chapter 5 is talking about the Passover. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This is literal. We need to keep the feast of the Passover. No, it's a figure of speech. How do I know it's a figure of speech? Read uh, verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are leavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's talking about an old leaven which is malice and wickedness and a new leaven which is sincerity and truth. He's not talking about the Passover bread. He's using a figure of speech to communicate a spiritual truth. This is telling us to keep the feast spiritually. With each other, let's not be governed with malice and wickedness in how we deal with one another in the church like we were before we were saved. But let's deal with each other in sincerity and truth. That's the feast he's speaking of. The Passover points to that. Biblical literalists like myself, we don't deny the presence or the usage of symbol or allegory or figure of speech in the Scriptures as Reformed theology accuses us of being. We don't deny the presence of these things. They're there. And they're there to highlight or teach eternal spiritual truths. I mean, every time in the Old Testament, God is described in human terms. That is a figure of speech to emphasize a great spiritual truth about God that our human minds can't understand without these anthropomorphisms. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech whereby the eternal God is described in human terms as having the scent of His hand or the brow of His head or, the, or, the, or His feet. God is not... God is no more like the most mighty angel in heaven than He is like the bacteria still in that toilet in there. I don't care how bad you, great you clean the toilet. and Ryan Davis' toilets are always clean, but there's still bacteria in it. God's no more like the great angel than He is the bacteria. He's above all of that. But He reveals Himself to us in language we can understand because we can't comprehend the eternal. We understand these things are in the Scriptures. But the context and the plain testimony elsewhere reveals or determines what is and is not a symbol or an allegory. Not me. Turn to Galatians 4. In the book of Genesis, when these things take place, it's history being written. There's a literal history there. I don't know that this is an allegory between the law and the, the promise, 
But I know it is because God reveals it. Galatians 4.24 He's talking about Abraham had two sons, one by Hagar, the other by Sarah. And that who was born of Hagar was born after the flesh. That was a man-made decision. Isaac was born the seed of promise according to God. And then he says in verse 24, Paul, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. They picture for us the two covenants. The one, the covenant of the law from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, not on the Sinai Peninsula, where the Catholics say Mount Sinai is. It says it's in Arabia. What's Arabia? Arabia is Saudi Arabia. That's where Mount Sinai is. It's not the traditional site on the Sinai Peninsula. Sometimes the Bible gives a simple answer to a complex question. Mount Sinai in Arabia, there's some interesting documentaries online about a site in Saudi Arabia that would literally have necessitated Israel crossing over the entire Red Sea, not some little gulf where there was reeds and the water was only up to your knees. For Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So here we have an allegory, not because we think there's one, but because God reveals to us there is one. He revealed it. That's why we know that these things not only were literal history, they're an allegory. And the allegory doesn't take away from the fact that it's a literal history of what happened. We don't have the right to allegorize Scripture or to rob it of its literal meaning or assume figures of speech that the context do not allow. We don't have the right to do that. Only the Holy Spirit has the right to do that. You remember in Jesus' ministry where He healed certain people and He told them not to go out and tell anyone. And they did it anyway. And I've heard people stand up here and preach and say, well, Jesus was using reverse psychology. He really wanted them to publish it, but He told them not to, so they would do it. You don't have a right to interpret Scripture that way. You don't have to, a right to take modern 20th century psychological terms and put them on Jesus. Jesus told them not to do it. And they did it anyway. And it actually inhibited His ministry. It, 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 it interfered with his ability to teach his disciples because all the crowds and stuff that came. Sometimes well-meaning actions of Christian people can cause a lot of problems for the church. But there's no reverse psychology there. The Scriptures do not indicate that. We have no right to force that upon the text. We do this in modern speech all the time. Why is it any surprise that God would use figures of speech? I often hear Bieber use a phrase about a person. Man, he's a beast. Well, that, he's not an animal with fur. It means he's a beast of a man. It's a figure of speech. Our president often uses sarcasm to make a point. And the sarcasm is very evident when you listen to it in its context. But when the media takes his words, they parse it. And ignore the figure of speech. And accuse him of saying things he didn't say. The Christian media does that. It's not right. You don't have a right to misrepresent 
even what a lost man is saying. You don't have a right to do that. We're to deal in sincerity and truth. Figures of speech in the Scriptures. Let the Scriptures show us and let us see them as thus. And we see that here with this simple statement about who these 144,000 are. They're not literal men that are single men. They can't be single men and unmarried women at the same time. They're spiritual virgins. They're not like the rest of the Israel, which is the adulterous wife of Jehovah. Verse 4, They follow the Lamb, not the rabbis. They're redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. That means there are others. Not just these 144,000 out of Israel. There's more. There's the harvest. Many of them are holed up in the wilderness. Remember Revelation 12? When the woman flees into the wilderness? But the first fruits are able to continue their worldwide labors and their worldwide preaching to fulfill what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will go into all the earth for a witness, and then, then the end will come. Verse 5 And their mouth was found no guile. This is the uh, snapshot of assemblies here. In their mouth was found no guile. What is guile? Guile is an old word. It. It's not just lying. It's not, that, it's not that simple. Guile is crafty. It's not accidental. It's flattering speech that deceives. Duplicity, dishonesty, dissimulation, concealing certain things that we know to be true. In a sense, it's what Paul refers to in Romans 12, 9, let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. In other words, don't let your love for the lost conceal the truth about the gospel. Conceal the truth about hell. Conceal the truth about righteousness. That is not love. That's guile. And we as preachers of the gospel ought to have no guile in our mouth. These witnesses had no deceit. They weren't peddling the lies of the rabbis or mishandling the scriptures. Not fooled by the false Messiah. The Catholics learned how to mishandle the Scriptures by following the example of the Jewish rabbis. They're the kings of it for all of history. Mishandling the Scriptures. Telling us Isaiah 53 is not talking about Messiah, but talking about the nation of Israel. Even when the early rabbis, even the first few centuries after Jesus' life, knew it was talking about Messiah. The rabbis are the kings of twisting the Scriptures. Their mouth is full of guile in rabbinic Judaism, but not these witnesses. They're not like that. They don't follow that example. They are those who speak the truth in a time when doing so really is the revolutionary thing to do and it's a dangerous thing to do. Are we going to follow that example? These are future witnesses, but their example is written. Are we going to follow it? Are we going to be those that have no guile? That means we speak the truth in a time when it's a revolutionary thing to do and when it's a dangerous thing to do. Those Israelites who are without guile in the way they declare the Scriptures are what the Bible calls Israelites indeed. True Jews. Ethnic Jewish and the spiritual and spiritually faithful. Jesus had one of these for a disciple. One of His disciples is a picture of what these witnesses will be. Turn to John 2. 
Anybody know who that disciple was, kids? Oh, Bob. I mean, okay, if you guys, midlife crisis, want to think you're still kids? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. No, y'all have passed the midlife. I'm midlife crisis. You guys would be a late life crisis, I guess. Heart of hearing, that's the answer. <laughs> John chapter 2, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disciple named Nathaniel. He's got that, anytime you see that phrase El in a person's name in Hebrew, that's the name for God. Nathaniel has the name God in his name. What in the world is that? John 2. Um, I say, I've got written down John 2, 45 through 47, and there's not 45. It's John 1. Man, how does that happen? John 1, 45. Now, Jesus had uh, found Philip and said to Philip, follow me. Philip was of the city of Bethsaida. Uh, same as Andrew and Peter, uh, Jamie and I walked around the ruins of Bethsaida at night one time. It's just ruins. There's no, nothing there. City's gone, but it's there. The place is there. Unlike the Book of Mormon that names places that you can't find any evidence they were ever there. The uh, the Quran does the same thing, by the way. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. In other words, we found the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. He speaks the truth. He speaks the truth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Bluntness. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Didn't take much to convince him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. He saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is making reference to an Old Testament image that we now know was a symbol declaring Messiah because of what Jesus says. What was it? What was revealed in the Old Testament with the angels of God ascending and descending? Jacob's ladder. The bridge between God and man. It was a literal ladder that Jacob saw, but we know it was a symbol of Messiah because Jesus says so. The bridge between sinful man and a holy God. Nathaniel was an Israelite indeed. These witnesses are Israelites indeed. When it says a person has no guile, they speak the truth, but there is an element of bluntness there. To be without guile means to be blunt. It doesn't mean to be mean. In our culture, you know, the, the, the supersensitivity of our culture is one of those things that needs to be redeemed. Uh, in the Christian life. There's no excuse for it. We need to get over it. There's an element in which we need to be blunt, like the Jewish people. Chutzpah. He spoke the truth. He wasn't afraid. 
wasn't afraid. There's an element of bluntness. If we're going to be without guile, there needs to be an element of bluntness. The opposite of that is what false teachers are. They tickle ears. False teachers tickle ears. True preachers of the gospel speak true. They speak plain. I'll tell you plain. There was a time in the Civil War when at the Battle of Gettysburg when General Longstreet and the Confederate Army was riding very close to the lines right before it was before the third day uh, when, when Lee had ordered Pickett's charge. He was riding very close to the lines and a cannonball exploded nearby and knocked him off his horse. And one of his staff members said, General, I'll tell you plain. You worry me. Putzpah. Speak blunt. He didn't care he was a general. He told him straight up. False teacher does the opposite. When we speak with guile, this is the result. The result of it is what Jesus says in Luke 6.26. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. When all men speak well of you, there's guile on your tongue. Rest assured doesn't mean we shouldn't desire people to respect us. But when all men always speak well of you, you have a tongue that speaks guile. These are also, in Revelation 14, they don't speak guile. That, we need to follow that example. No guile in their mouth. They are without fault before the throne of God. Without fault. In Genesis 15, 6, God made a promise to Abraham. And it said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Because Abraham believed what God said, he was without fault before the throne of God. These witnesses are without fault. To be without fault, my friends, doesn't mean without sin. We are born in sin. If any man says he's without sin, he's a liar. To be without fault, however, is to be without blame. If our identity is in Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, as it is in these that follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes, then we too are without fault. Not without sin, but without fault, without blame. Because our trust is in the Lamb who bore the sins and paid the price. Turn to Hebrews 4. What does it mean to be without fault? Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. My friends, this is our standing. Our standing is not in our religion. Our standing is not in our church attendance. Our standing is not in our works. And our standing is not in what, how well we get along with the world. This is our standing. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us therefore, what is it therefore? Because of this fact, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That means when we screw up, because of what Jesus done, we're without fault. 
and we can go boldly into that throne of grace and we can find mercy to help us in time of need. That's our standing. That's the standing of these witnesses. They're without fault before the throne of God. Have you embraced the fact that in Jesus Christ you are without fault before God? Nothing can take that away. Or you believe in another gospel, another Jesus, where you have to do works to earn His favor. You have to do works to keep His favor. True Christians know that because of our standing before God, we don't continue in sin. We know that. You don't need to preach a gospel of works to keep true Christians from sinning and finding victory in sin. Professing Christians never find, a lot of professing Christians never find victory in sin because their standing's never been in Christ. It's been in their works. Their identity's never been in Messiah. It's been in their works and their religion. These witnesses have an identity in Messiah. They're an example for us in so many things. Let your identity, my friends, be in Messiah. When you fail, when you succeed, whatever happens in your earthly pilgrimage, when you fear, when you're at peace, let your identity be in Messiah. Without fault doesn't mean without sin. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Fault is not sin. Therefore, when it says in the New Testament, confess your faults one to another, in James, it's not correct like the modern Bibles do and translate it, confess your sins. We're not called upon to confess our sins in detail to others in the body to whom we've not sinned against. But we should confess our faults. We ought to be transparent and reveal our weaknesses to our brethren. If I sin against my wife and I treat her badly, I speak uncomely toward her, I'm not called to come into church today and say, listen guys, I need to confess, last night I said this to my wife. No. That's between me and her. It's between me and God. I need to make it right. But what I need to be willing to do is stand here and say, you know, I struggle sometimes with speaking without thinking. I have a fault. Pray for me. Well, if you're having a fault, you can be comforted and know that I've struggled and you can come to me and find comfort and we can help one another. Without fault is not without sin. Confess your faults is not confess your sins. You confess your sins to God, not to a priest. You confess it to the one you've sinned against before you go talking to anybody else about it. That's Bible. What does without fault also mean? Romans 5. We're without fault. What does that mean? Therefore, being justified, verse 1, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access. If we're without fault before the throne of God, that means we have access to the throne of God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through a monk. We don't have to go through a prophet. We don't have to go through the Holy of Holies. We have access to the throne room of God. That's what it is to be without fault. We have access. Go to Him. When you sin against Him, don't pine away for several days thinking, I'm not worthy. I can't even talk to God. I'm so ashamed. Go to the throne room. You have access. And confess it. Praise God. 
As for the wild olive branches, so with the natural branches broken off but grafted in again. We're the wild olive branch, Romans 11. We're without fault before the throne of God. We have access. So it will be with the natural branches who look to Messiah and are grafted back in again. They too are without fault because their identity is in Messiah. Praise God. Revelation 14, 1-5 is the first fruits of the fulfillment of what Paul says in Romans 11. Let's flip over there. And it's only 5 after 12. Let me go a little bit. I'm going to get where I need to get. If you guys are okay to indulge me for a bit. Romans 11, 25-27 For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. There in Revelation 14, there He is standing on Mount Zion with the first fruits and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is the fulfillment. The first fruits and those scattered about too will be gathered. It's the fulfillment. Therefore, Because we know these things will be fulfilled and we see it there in Revelation, Paul warns us, those that preach foolishness, the foolishness of replacement theology, would do well to heed these warnings. Verse 18. Turn back, verse 18. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Don't boast against the branches that rejected their Messiah and think you're better than them, and that God's replaced them. Don't do that. Be warned. Because when you do that, you're not bearing the root of the faith of Abraham. You're not bearing... You don't bear the root. The root bears you. So don't boast against the natural branches, because when you do that, you're boasting against the root that bears those branches. You need to remember that the root, the faith of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of Israel. It's because of them that we can know the true God. Boast not. And then verse 28, as concerning the Gospel, and I'm, I'm reverting back to talking about the Jewish people today. I've talked a lot about the fallacy of replacement theology. I'm going to end with this. As concerning the Gospel, the Jewish people by and large today, and many of them, the false rabbis during the tribulation, they're enemies for our sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. They may be our enemies for the Gospel. They may hate the Gospel. They may form their anti-missionary societies. They find out we're sharing the Gospel with Jewish people. A friend may become an enemy. That doesn't give us a right to hate them or to ignore them or to come up with cockamamie interpretations of Scripture that say they've been replaced. We need to pause and remember that there's an election it's funny that the one, the replacement theology people are usually so diehard Calvinists and they talk about election, 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 and they ignore the fact that Israel's been elected. That there's an election regarding Israel, an election that will produce a remnant, and that remnant will be, will see the fulfillment of all those promises. The first fruits bring the 144 thousand, and then their converts. For the election's sake, for God's promise's sake, let's love the Jewish people, regardless of how they treat us. 
Verse 29, why? Because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The gifts and calling of God with, re with regard to Israel without repentance. He doesn't repent for that. He stands by it. And the gifts and calling of God with regard to Messiah and the Gentiles and His promises to us as the church are without repentance. That's why we can walk in our faith. That's why we can trust it. That's why we can have assurance if our identity is in Christ that we're saved. And nothing can ever take that away. Those that preach a salvation that can't be lost, that can be lost, are preaching something that's no different than man-made religion. If I can't offer you anything better than that, I may as well go home because I hope so salvation is what the world offers. That's the best that Muhammad could offer at the end of his life. He didn't even know where he was going according to the Quran. You want to follow a prophet that didn't know what God would do with him? It's been said that Buddha's last words were, I, I didn't make it. You want to follow that? You want to make the gospel into that? The Bible's clear. Quit ripping scriptures in Hebrews 6 and 10 out of their context and ignoring the Jewish audience. And maybe you'll see that salvation we preach is not hope so, it's a no so. These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. But then it goes on in Romans 11 that uh, you Gentiles in times past, you didn't believe in God. You know what a great thing to say to a Jewish person is when you want to witness? Here's some great things to say to introduce the conversation. Did you know that everything in my faith is Jewish except for me? That's a great way. Everything in my faith is Jewish except for me. I'm a Gentile. Another great thing to say is a Jewish man changed my life. Here's another one. Reflective of what Paul says here. My Gentile forefathers worshipped idols. But today, by God's grace, I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a great thing to say. It's true. If we go back in our history, our fathers were Gentiles. They worshipped idols. But we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul says, remember that. That... In times past, you didn't believe God, but what did you find? You found mercy because of their unbelief. Even so, these also, not believing, the Jewish people, through your mercy, they may also obtain mercy. We're to be merciful to them in a way that we may find it hard to be with other people. Merciful. Why? Because God hath concluded them all in unbelief that He may have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Shame on replacement theology and those that preach it. Shame on them. Repent. Amen. Mercy, not censure, my friends. Mercy, not censure for the Jewish people. Verses 6 through 12, Revelation 14. We get into our second snapshot. Got the snapshot of assembly, verses 1 through 5. Now we have a snapshot of judgment. And this judgment involves three angelic messengers. Three messages preached. 
Snapshots of judgment. I like the comparisons we make in the world war. There were announcements of judgments to Nazi Germany and to the Japanese. Announcements. Not just one, but at least three that really brought about the judgment upon these wicked nations and brought an end to the war. So, that's what's happening here. It's not some deep, dark secret. It's things being revealed to us in ways that humans go about revealing things in times of war. We have an angelic messenger here who goes out preaching the everlasting judge gospel. Look, the hour of judgment has come. God's hour of judgment has come. You need to worship the Creator because the judgment has come. I'm thinking about a message that went out on February 4th, 1945 at a place called Yalta where Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill met and they planned what they were going to do with Germany after they were defeated, how they were going to divide up the country. And, Ru and Russia or the USSR agreed to join the war against Japan and these things were announced. In other words, we're joining hands. Be on notice, Japan, the hour of the judgment has come. Be on notice, Germany, we will defeat you. We're already planning how to carve up your country because it's as good as done. An announcement of judgment. Now, it wasn't until late April, this was on February 4th, it wasn't until late April that Soviet forces and Polish troops actually stormed Berlin and conquered it. So there was more than two months that went by before Berlin was actually conquered. The city, the symbol of Nazi Germany fell. It wasn't until late April. This second angel goes out and announces the fall of Babylon. Another snapshot. The Soviets met the Americans at the Elbe River on April 25th, 1945. The two armies approaching from different directions met. Now, uh, Patton warned our country, we shouldn't let the Russians get into Berlin first. We need to go take it. And Eisenhower didn't listen to that. And as a result, the Russians got there. And what happened later was East and West Berlin, East and West Germany. So, uh, some foolish decisions about being hesitant. Late April, we have a third angelic messenger that announces judgment not against the city, but against the individuals that follow the beast. Well, judgment was announced against the city of Berlin, the capital city in late April. But it wasn't until April 30th that the Reichstag, that was the building that was kind of the government building of the Nazis. The Reichstag was captured and that literally signaled the end of Nazi Germany. That was the formal end. They were finished. And after that, or on that same day, it is said that Hitler committed suicide. And so there was an announcement of judgment to everybody involved. There was the fall of the capital. And then there was the fall of the individual. That's what happens here. Announcement of judgment to all. A fall of the capital city, the world system, and the fall of the individuals. Snapshots of judgment. Snapshots of victory. All these things weren't independent one of another. They didn't characterize the victory, but without them, there wouldn't have been a victory. Now, it's kind of interesting. I don't want to get into this, but talking about Hitler committing suicide, there was a skull fragment that the Russians found at this location 
where he supposedly killed himself and they quickly buried him and, his, and Eva Braun, his mistress, uh, according to instructions that were given. There was a skull fragment with a bullet hole found outside his bunker and the Russians kept it in their federal archives in Moscow uh, for decades and it was believed to be Hitler's. Did you know that in 2009 this skull fragment was taken to the University of Connecticut and there was some DNA testing done on it and it was found to be or proved to be the skull of a woman less than 40 years old. Wasn't Hitler's skull. Just wasn't. You know, there are conspiracy theories that say that he actually snuck out of Germany and went to Argentina. There's a place called Hacienda San Ramon, which is just, just east of where Dylan and Sherry live, live now, that he supposedly lived out. And then you go, he moved up to a mansion on the northwest end of Lake Nahuel Huapi on the Chilean border. I've driven right by it. The road that goes up by that lake into Chile, me and Dylan and Sherry and I drove right by it. And there's a mansion out there, there's a piece of property, and there's a sign there. It literally says this is where Hitler spent his last days and supposedly died in February of uh, 1962. I've seen it. It's right there on the highway. And so there are a lot of theories that uh, claim all of this stuff. I mean, who knows? I think there's a lot of things that we are so sure happened a certain way that we don't know the truth. We don't know the truth. But you know what? We will learn. We will learn. Because you see, we have an eternity in the presence of the Creator. And the Creator knows all. He knows all. You can climb up to heaven, He's there. He knows everything. You can go down to the depths of the sea, He's there, as the prophet says, Amos. You can hide in a cave, He's there, He knows everything. The Creator knows all. And you know what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2? He says, the Creator is a revealer of secrets. And at the end, or he, he reveals secrets, and at the end, Nebuchadnezzar confessed, he is a revealer of secrets. Our God is a revealer of secrets. And one of the things that I look forward to so much in eternity, I'm a student of history, I love history, I used to teach world history in, in uh, uh, U.S. history, and I marvel at the divine providences throughout history. History proves there's a God. But I'm looking forward to those eternal history classes well, we can find out what really happened. Not what the news media says. Not what the history books written by the victors say. Not what Yankee textbooks say about the Civil War. But I'm looking forward to learning the truth. And in learning the truth, we're going to see divine providences that we never knew were there. We're going to see and learn things that God did, even in our own lives, that we didn't even know. Kind of like the... Two sets of footprints and then all of a sudden there's one on the beach because that's when Christ carried us. We're going to learn these things. And it's going to be cause for rejoicing. We're going to learn whether Hitler committed suicide or whether he escaped to Argentina. We're going to learn uh, whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK or somebody else was involved. We're going to learn what was going on in the eight years of the Obama presidency. We're going to learn that Hillary, everything that Hillary Clinton did or has done will be revealed. The day will declare it. Praise God that. We'll learn. I love the uh, analogy here to World War II. Turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. These are very important passages of Scripture that I like to preach. This is what distinguishes the God of the Bible, the Creator God. And remember, I'm not getting off topic here because the Creator God is what's preached here by this first angel. 
The Creator God is preached. Not the Savior God, the Creator God. Now, the, the, the Creator is the Savior, but there's a time when we need to emphasize the fact that He's Creator. It's all one. Yes, He's Savior, but we need to emphasize He's Creator. And this is what distinguishes Him from all of man-made gods. Remember the former things of old, verse 9. For I am God and there is none else. 46, Isaiah, 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Why is there none like Him? Because He is able to declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Why? There's none like God because only God can declare exactly what's going to happen in the distant future from a time in the ancient past. Only God can do that. He can declare the He can tell you what the end of the story is before the story's even begun. And things that could not even be conceived to the generation of the prophets, He can declare it plain. He can declare plain that the earth isn't flat, that it's a sphere hanging in outer space, just like He does in the Old Testament. He can tell the prophets that in the constellation of uh, uh, the Pleiades, there's seven stars. Even though man didn't know that until he got a telescope and looked at it through a telescope. He could only see six with the naked eye. But God can declare the end from the beginning. That's who we serve. And that's who's going to be preached to all the world. His hour has come. And I think we need to be preaching that everlasting gospel now. Verses 6 and 7. Let's look at this first angel, and I'll kind of introduce this because it necessitates us talking about four aspects of the gospel that are emphasized in the New Testament. Not four gospels, but four aspects of the gospel. Verses 6 and 7. Snapshot of judgment in his victory campaign. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. That midst of heaven means in the atmosphere. He's in the atmosphere that the human eye can see. He's flying through the sky. This is visible to the inhabitants of the earth. Having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Those dwelling on the earth as opposed to the ones dwelling in heaven, the raptured church that Antichrist blasphemes and mocks in chapter 13. This is to be preached to those dwelling on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. He flies and he preaches. Saying with a loud voice, what is this everlasting gospel? Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. The everlasting gospel is there is a Creator God. He made all things. And He will judge everything that men have ever done. That's the everlasting gospel. And you know what gospel means? It means good news. Is that good news? It's not good news to the ones that are perish. But I'm going to tell you who it's good news to. It's good news to us who have suffered reproach for the cause of Christ at the hands of wicked men. This gospel will be good news to those witnesses who have fled the Antichrist. It will be good news to those families who have faced martyrdom and those Jews holed up in that wilderness when they hear the hour of His judgment.
has come. That is the everlasting gospel. This angel, the word gospel or good news comes from the Greek word euangelios. It's where we get the word evangelism. It's from the Greek word evangelios, which means good news. His mission, this angelic messenger's mission, is to preach, not to smile, not to be nice to people, not to love on people. His message is to preach. Having the everlasting gospel to preach. Not to conceal, to preach. And guess what? You can't preach without speaking. Can't do it. 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul makes this very clear. In explaining to the Corinthians why he does what he does. 2 Corinthians 4.13 This is what you can show your quote-unquote Christian brethren who say that you're preaching of the gospel, you're sharing the gospel, or giving out tracts is turning people away. Foolishness. I don't have that kind of power to turn someone away from the gospel that God is drawing. Be foolish to claim I did. 2 Corinthians 4.13 We having the same spirit of faith According as it is written, I believe, he's quoting the psalmist, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and we therefore speak. This angel preaches. We ought to preach. Can't preach without speaking. And we know that you can't preach without speaking because it says he's commissioned to preach the everlasting gospel. And what is the verb there in verse 7? Saying with a loud voice. Not whispering in a corner. Saying with a loud voice to preach. Did you know that this is the only place in the Bible where an angel is commissioned to preach the gospel? You remember Acts chapter 10, Cornelius the Gentile in Caesarea? He had a dream. And an angel appeared unto him. But the angel couldn't tell Cornelius how to be saved. The angel could only announce that Cornelius' prayers had been heard and that he needed to go to Peter. or He needed to have Peter come tell him what he needed to do. So this angel couldn't preach the gospel. That was commissioned to Peter. The angel told Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and there's one coming who's going to tell you what you need to do. In this present... This is Acts chapter 10 I'm talking about. In this present dispensation, the church age that we're living in, only redeemed men can preach the gospel. That, what, that is what Christ has commissioned His church to do. But, just before the return of the Lord, after the gospel of the kingdom, after the church has been taken out, after the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to all nations by the whole 144,000, then an angel will go forth and preach to all that dwell on the earth the everlasting gospel. We're to preach it first. It's for us to do. And only then at the end, right before the end, is an angelic messenger sent out. When the church has been raptured out, when the tribulation saints have been martyred, and when Israel is brought to her very end, an angel comes and declares the everlasting gospel. To who? To those that dwell on the earth. Not those dwelling in heaven. The ones dwelling in heaven are the ones that the Antichrist blasphemes when he blasphemes God. That word dwell is from the same word that we get mansion in John 14 when Jesus says what He's going to do for His church. The church has been raptured out. This gospel is not for the church. 
is for those dwelling on the earth. The everlasting gospel. What is the everlasting gospel? Well, we know exactly what it is in verse 7. But this necessitates a discussion here. There are four forms of the gospel mentioned in the New Testament. Now, don't hear me wrong here. There's not four gospels. There's four forms of the gospel. Four aspects in terms of what is emphasized. My friends, the gospel is bigger than Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That is central. That is important, but it's bigger than that. There's a whole lot more that goes with it. And we don't need to ignore that. There's four forms of the gospel. They're all one. And one of them is ultimately not dependent of the other. Just like the Gospels in the New Testament. There are four that emphasize different aspects of Jesus' ministry. They're not independent. They're all one. Jesus' life is bigger than what was revealed in Mark. Bigger than what was revealed in Matthew. It's all one. And you can't neglect any of it. It's kind of like the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's not three gods. It's God revealed in three persons. It's all one. It's like man. Friends, you guys, your body, your body is 100% you. Your soul, your soul is 100% you. Your spirit, your spirit is 100% you. All three of those things won't be redeemed until the church is raptured out. But it's all you. You can't have one without the other. It's dead. One without the other is dead. It's you. Four Gospels in the New Testament. When we preach Jesus, we need to remember these four Gospels. Here we have one of them mentioned. The everlasting Gospel. The first one is what I would call the Gospel of the Kingdom. I'm not going to get into it today. I think I'm going to stop here. But I'm going to give you a summary. We've got the Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel of the Kingdom preaches Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. He is the King of of the Jews. He is a king that will rule over the earth. That's the gospel of the kingdom. You've got Matthew chapter 24 talks about this. It's all throughout the gospels. You've got the gospel of the grace of God that Paul refers to in Acts 20. The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He paid the price so that we could have salvation. You've also got what Paul calls my gospel. My gospel. My gospel is just a bigger, fuller description of the gospel of God's grace. The gospel is revealed in the Pauline epistles given to the church. It's not just about Jesus saving us from our sins, it's about Jesus building his church. According to my gospel, these are, Paul said, my gospel, what was given to him by Christ through special revelation, Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah. He's not just the Savior. He's the head of the church. That's why the epistles are so important for us for the church. Ephesians talks about... Ephesians 3 talks about that mystery of Jew and Gentile together in the church with Christ as the head. It's a fuller expression of the gospel of the grace of God. And then we've got the everlasting gospel here in Revelation 14. Not emphasizing Jesus' office as king. Not emphasizing His place as Savior. 
Not emphasizing His place as the head of the church. The everlasting gospel emphasizes that Jesus the Christ is the Creator who made all things. And He's the judge who will judge all things. And friends, when you put them all together, it's one gospel. It's one gospel in which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the central figure. Which He has been from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21. Jesus, we preach, is the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. And He's coming to bring a kingdom on this earth. This Jesus is Savior. Wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Turned everyone to His own way. But God hath laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel also tells us that He is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. He's our high priest. He's our pastor. So that we can grow up unto a building fitted together, a church. And this gospel also tells him that he's not just a man sent by God. He's not just a demigod that was on this earth before in the days of Noah. He's not just a good example. He is the Creator God. Colossians tells us very clearly that by Him all things were made. Or John says, by Him all things were made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And Colossians tells us that all things were made by Him and in Him all things consist. That's the fullness of the gospel. We don't need to get caught up only on the gospel of the grace of God. That's important. Jesus is the Savior, but He's more than that. He's the King. He's the head of the church. Hater God. God was manifest in the flesh. So there are four forms of the gospel in the New Testament. I want to talk a little bit about the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus emphasizes this. There were two preachings of this gospel. One was in the past, and it ended. The emphasis ended because it was rejected. But there's another future preaching of it. It has a distinguished Jewish element that's important. The gospel of the grace of God. Do we really understand it enough to preach it? What does it mean to be of the grace of God? Do we understand the substitutionary and the propitiatory nature of the price that was paid for our sins on the cross for our salvation? Do we understand what the resurrection means, that God accepted it? My gospel, same as the gospel of salvation, but with the additional revelations that God made known to Paul for the church. Do we truly understand the unique position we have as the church? The unique privilege for Jew and Gentile it is to be a part of this church and what we're commissioned to do. In the everlasting gospel, Jesus Christ is Creator. When we preach Him, we need to preach Him not just as Savior, but as God, Creator who's going to judge all things. Good news. Even Jesus preached the everlasting gospel. I'm not going to get I'm excited, but I don't want to get into it today. Think of it this way. When you think of those four forms of the gospel, as you ponder and think about it, I'm not saying four different gospels. It's one gospel. And the central figure is Jesus Christ. Identity in Him. If you have no identity in Him, you're in trouble. You see, God is a furious storm, it says in the prophet Nahum. He's a furious storm. But He's also the shelter from that storm. Jesus Christ is the only one that can save you to God. But He's the only one that can save you from God. 
Do we understand those things? And I hope to get into that a little bit, probably one sermon, and, and uh, you guys can get a fuller understanding as you go out and preach. But think about this. When we think about the gospel of the kingdom, think about Jesus as He preaches and is presented in the gospel of Matthew. He's the King of the Jews. So think of the gospel of the kingdom emphasizing what's emphasized in the gospel of Matthew. When you think about the gospel of the grace of God, think about the emphasis we find in the gospel of Mark. Jesus in the gospel of Mark, it's short and sweet. The gospel of the grace of God is short and sweet. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. A sweet, short message for the lost. But for those that are saved, it's much more than that. But in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is sweet, blunt. The Great Commission reflects this gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus in Mark is a servant. He's a servant. A Savior. Jesus as Savior. When you think of my gospel, the fullness of the gospel revealed to Paul, think about Jesus and how He is revealed in the gospel of Luke. In Luke, He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man who came to build a church, to raise up and train a body of disciples and equip them to lead His church. Jesus as the Son of Man or the head of the church. When you think about the everlasting gospel, that aspect of the gospel, think about the gospel of John. In the gospel of John, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is Creator. Not for Gospels, for emphases. And let's be faithful to be balanced depending upon our audience. We should be preaching the Gospel to the lost, but we should also be preaching it to the Jewish people. We should be preaching it to the church. And we should be reminding ourselves